Hi, this is Eve, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, Three Ghost Stories and a Murder. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. For over six decades, a large white house stood at the corner of William Street North and Portage Avenue in Chilliwack. The stately old manor had a three-storey tower with a turret topped off by a witch's hat, and for a while, the house put the town on the tourism map. Hetty and Douglas Fredrickson unknowingly bought the haunted house in 1965, and it wasn't long before strange things started happening. One upstairs bedroom was particularly active. Drawers opened and slammed shut. A heavy old iron bedstead moved around by itself. And the Fredericksons heard footsteps in the room when the rest of the family were gathered downstairs. Neighbours told Hetty two stories about the house. One said that a man committed suicide there in 1956. Another said a woman was murdered and cemented in the chimney. Hetty found a hidden door, a boarded-over passageway, and a small, undiscovered turret room. And if that wasn't weird enough, things were about to get a lot worse. She saw an illuminated mist that reeked of perfume, and then she began to dream about a ghost. In these dreams, she'd see the shape of a terrified woman in a red dress with yellow flowers. Hetty was an artist, and she decided to paint the ghost. It wasn't easy, she told a newspaper reporter. Every time I tried to paint, the face would start out as a man, even as I tried to paint a woman. But I really concentrated, and at last, painted a likeness of the woman. In 1966, the newspaper Chilliwack Progress wrote about Hetty's ghost. The national media jumped on the story, and it was reported in newspapers as far away as Japan. But even scarier than the changing painting and the rumoured deaths was a public reaction. One Sunday, 700 people turned up at the Fredericksons to try to catch a glimpse of the ghosts. They broke the front steps, prompting the couple to put up a no sightseers sign. It was all too much for Douglas, a logger, and the couple left for Vancouver Island in 1968. The next owners moved into the house with their eight kids and the family dog. Known only as Mrs X in the media, the owner told a reporter that while she did not believe in ghosts, there were at least three sharing her house, including a mother ghost who liked to watch television with the family. The woman's husband, who didn't believe in ghosts either, slept with a gun under his pillow. In 1973, a clever realtor decided to embrace the ghosts. The house, he said, was available for $23,000 and included six bedrooms, a new roof and a very old ghost. It used to be that selling a haunted house was a real estate man's nightmare the realtor told a reporter. Today, haunted houses seem to attract more interest than those that are not. The realtor told a reporter that he expected to sell the property within a few days. 
and had already had dozens of inquiries from people who were interested in buying the haunted house. Two years later, a hot water tank exploded and caught fire. The house burned down, but fortunately, the couple who lived there at the time escaped with their five children. On Forbidden Vancouver's Lost Souls of Gastown walking tour, you'll step inside a world of murder and revenge. There's a retelling of Victorian Gastown's earliest stories with tales of the Great Fire, smallpox outbreaks and the unsolved murder of John Bray. The experience is led by one of Forbidden Vancouver's cast of professional theatre actors who leads you through the city's oldest back streets and alleyways to a dramatic finale in the heart of Gastown. I took this walking tour and it sure sent a shiver down my spine. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. A little before 10 in the morning, on October 3rd, 1975, there were two explosions at the grain elevators that rocked North Vancouver. The fire caused $8 million in damages, killed five people and created one ghost. David Sampson was an inspector with the Canadian Grain Commission. He was walking down the tracks to the Barad terminals when he saw a few of the workers that he knew moving quickly away from the grain elevators. Yeah, I was working at Saskatchewan Wheat Pool next door that morning from where I was standing. The side of the workhouse had been blown off and you could see the stairs going all the way up to the top of the elevator. Did you hear something? Was that what brought you no, out? No, there was only a small fire at the top. There wasn't any real blaze at that time, but that came within the next half hour. Right, because apparently there were two really loud explosions. Yeah, two explosions there. There was a, a one that was a smaller explosion, and that knocked most of the dust that was in the terminal, knocked it from shelves and things like that, and put it into the air. Then when the... Uh, the dust there, which is very explosive, hit the, the flames there. Then it started the second explosion was the one that caused the, the major damage. Grain dust is so explosive that there was one expert said there that it was 35 times more explosive than TNT. Ed Hooper was standing at the top of the elevator when the fire broke out, and he grabbed a fire extinguisher and tried to put it out. Samson thinks he must have been killed by the second explosion because nothing of him was ever found. David Furman was on a grade four field trip to the old spaghetti factory in Gastown. He told me, I remember seeing a bright yellow light through the north window of the restaurant. I thought something had blown up in Barad Inlet or that a lightning bolt had hit a ship. Then came the sound, a muffled boom and the yellow light became an orange fireball that blew outward towards us before quickly receding under grey clouds. Other men came staggering out of the elevator, covered in dirt and burns. Sixteen men suffered severe burns, and four later died in hospital. They were Mal Hui, 58, John Scully, 56, James Evoy, 42, and 28-year-old Dave Brown. The workhouse itself was made out of wood. So eventually the whole thing caught fire. One of the fellows, Mel Hoy, he was standing on the grate when the explosion took place. He had these big, heavy work boots on. He had all the other his clothes that he was wearing and the rest of the pants, boots, and everything were, were burned right off. 
When Lisa Rowett, registered nurse, started her 11pm shift on the fourth floor of the Fairview Pavilion on the night of the explosion, she found the 18-bed burn unit in organised chaos. The corridors were full of stretches and extra staff had been called in so that every burn patient had their own nurse. One patient, she remembers, had 90% burns covering his entire body. We were in a Fairview pavilion, so I was building on the fourth floor. The burn unit was like 36 patients. We had 18 infectious patients one side and 18 burn unit burns on the other side, so it was reverse isolation. I didn't know anything about the explosion when I went to work, so it was uh, we had only one nurse, one practical, and one orderly, usually nights, and we started like 11 o'clock at night. And, of course, it was extremely busy in the normal circumstances. So when I got up there, wow, I had no idea. The place was stretchers everywhere, all the corridors full of stretchers. And then we heard what was what happened, and, uh, of course, they had uh, extra staff. Every patient had their own private nurse, and uh, I was just overseeing everybody then at night. But I guess one by one they came from emergency. Dave Brown was taken to the burn unit at Vancouver General Hospital, where against all odds he managed to survive for 58 days before dying of his injuries. Then, for some reason, the young man decided to stick around in his room, number 415. In 1989, Robert Ballack researched the story as part of his own book, Ghosts, True Tales of Eerie Encounters. Although 11 years had passed, Ballack was able to find two nurses and a patient who'd experienced strange encounters with Dave Brown's ghost. Staff told Ballack that they heard breathing when no one was in the room. They would feel a presence see an unexplained shape in the room. The toilet would flush, lights would go on and off, and the room was often freezing cold. Staff said that while it was unsettling, they never felt any danger. They also said that the ghost was kind to other burn patients. He would visit critically ill patients and bring them comfort. The ghost stayed around the burn unit until staff moved to new facilities in 1983. The building was torn down two years later. Victoria is the capital of British Columbia, and it's also our most haunted city. This story is a murder that took place in 1954 in the quiet James Bay neighbourhood, just a few minutes from Victoria's city centre. Murder in James Bay first appeared in my book Sensational Victoria. A few years after the Bests bought their James Bay home, a young woman knocked on the door and asked if she could come and take a look inside. Her name was Neva. She told them that her grandparents had lived in the cottage on Clarence Street in the 1950s and that she'd grown up believing that they were killed in a car crash. It was only recently, she told Paul Best, that she discovered her grandfather, Chester Pupkowski, had died in a mental hospital for the criminally insane more than four decades after stabbing his 38-year-old wife Cecilia to death in their kitchen. When I interviewed him several years ago, Paul Best told me that they'd had a bad feeling from the guy they bought the house from, but couldn't figure out what it was. His wife felt as though the house needed a cleansing, 
So they did a sagebrush burning to bring some good energy to the 1906 house, and then 10 years later, they found out about the murder. The Papowskis bought the house in 1955 and moved in with their 10-year-old son Milo. The Papowskis had met in a concentration camp in Poland and came to Canada via Germany. People saw them as a quiet and unassuming part of Victoria's Polish community. Chester, 48, was short with blonde hair and glasses. He spoke little English. He was a butcher by trade, but no longer worked and was often seen puttering around the couple's garden. Cecilia was friendly, neighbours said, but always working. When she wasn't in the kitchen at the Empress Hotel, she cleaned houses to pay the mortgage and support her family. The week before her murder, Chester collapsed on the street and was rushed to St Joseph's Hospital. He was discharged after seeing a psychiatrist who described him as being in a nervous state. On Saturday, March 24, 1956, Cecilia had just returned from working a split shift at the Empress Hotel. She was expected back at work at 5.30 that night. Milo was at a friend's place. At 2.45pm, George Warwick was standing outside his Clarence Street home when he heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the Papowski house. Warwick rushed inside and called the police. When he came out, he saw Chester was covered in blood and half walking, half running towards Holland Point. Warwick followed him in his truck. He watched as Chester waded out into the freezing ocean past three teenage boys as well as a one-armed man who was soaring driftwood on the beach. Chester started beating his head against a floating log. Police arrived and dragged Chester out of the water as he begged them to shoot him and told them that he wanted to die. At the same time, a second squad was already investigating the gory scene back at the Clarence Street house. Inspector Charles Webb and Detective Angus Munro found Cecilia's body sprawled on the kitchen floor, her throat slashed and her head battered. Signs of a bloody struggle were also evident in the sitting room of the home. Chester was taken to Royal Jubilee Hospital, sedated and placed under police guard. At 9.30 that night, police took him to the city jail and formally charged him with murder. Chester never stood trial. Instead, he was sent to Essingdale, which became Riverview Hospital in Coquitlam, and he stayed there until his death. Milo was placed in a foster home and likely had his name changed to distance himself from the tragedy. Evidently, he grew up, married, and had at least one child. Neva, the Papowski's grandchild, only ever visited the best that once. They never saw her again. The Vogue Theatre is on Granville Street in the heart of Vancouver's entertainment district, our own Theatre Row. It was built in 1941 by the Rifle family, a family of German brewers who are mostly known today for the Rifle Bird Sanctuary out past Ladner. But they made their fortune during US Prohibition, running booze across the border. And they built a few theatres, the Commodore, the Studio and the Vogue. The Vogue was the last one. It's an Art Deco building notable for its distinctive neon sign that's topped by a 12-foot figure of a kneeling goddess Diana that looks suspiciously like a hood ornament. The Vogue Theatre was designated as a National Historic Site in 1993. Bill Ullman was the general manager during part of the 1990s, and he is 
very familiar with a resident theatre ghost. I started working there in the summer of 1994. I knew some of the history. I had read some of it. I did not know that the theatre had quite a lot of ghost lore attached to it. But as it turns out from reading things later on, the staff who worked there even through the 60s and 70s, many of them were afraid to go into the basement because they described it as creepy. Do you believe in ghosts? Yes, because I'd had a couple of other experiences that had made it fairly clear to me that there's a little more to this world than just us. I don't believe in the white sheets floating about the house, but I certainly think there's some level of, shall we say, psychic communication that includes those that have passed on. Was there just one ghost in the Vogue or was there a gaggle of ghosts? What do you, actually, what do you call a group of ghosts? Uh, it's a gang. Uh, I had an incident happen in, I think it was August of 94, that uh, made me an absolute believer. I was the house manager by that point, and I was often the last person in the theatre. So I would lock up, do the last little bit of cleanup. And I was in the basement, and I was locking up the carpentry room, which is now a production office. I was bent over the uh, carpenter's bench and putting some things into a closet under a cupboard underneath. And you know that awful feeling, Eve, when someone's right behind you? Got that feeling, and it was really strong. It was like, there's somebody standing behind me, even though I knew at that point the theater was empty. Can you describe the basement to me? The Vogue is, is like any other uh, movie theater. Its design was actually that of a vaudeville house, although it was never really used for live shows during its heyday. But you walk in the lobby, you go into the audience area, or you go up the stairs to the balcony and into the audience area. Or if you're working there, you turn right and go down the stairs to a sort of a green room area, and then on the north or left side of the building, a long hallway that's lined with dressing rooms and production offices. That hallway is affectionately known or became affectionately known in later years as the Haunted Highway because there was so much activity up and down. And that's where I was for my first encounter. So I get this feeling that there's something behind me. I turn around and as I do, I see what I would describe as a three-dimensional shadow drift by the door. And I thought, okay, that's, uh, that's a little odd. <laughs> I walked out into the hallway and looked. By the time I got to the hallway, which matter of two steps, shadow was gone. I got a, a real chill. I got a real feeling of there is something here. I'm not alone in the building, even though I knew I was. I got out quickly. Is this the type of experience that other employees had had, or is everyone's different? It's fairly common. Uh, other employees have felt a cold sensation. One employee actually got touched up in the uh, catwalk, up in the area that's in, in the ceiling above the theater. Oh. He was up there working and he felt something brush by him. I had three different encounters with Ghost during my years there. I mean, we had a Beatles show called Revolver, a tribute band, playing in the Fogue. And as I walked out of the basement one day, I could hear the drum kit. We had a Ringo Starr Ludwig oh. drum kit on stage. And I could hear this boom, boom, boom. I went up onto the stage, looked around. There's nobody there. The drum kit sitting empty. There was only one other person in the house at the time. That was uh, my friend and the general manager, Rocket Norton, who was up in his office. So it hadn't been him. And I can tell you from the quality of the drumming, it wasn't him because he's an <laughs> excellent drummer. <laughs> so the ghost wasn't too good then, yeah? Uh, the ghost was, nah, he was rhythmically challenged, let's say that. Now, when you got up there, was it still playing or had it stopped? It stopped as I hit uh, the top of the stairs to get to the stage was when he put his oh. sticks down and, and left. A couple of months later, we had a musical in the house called Unforgettable. It was the music of Nat King Cole. And one of the performers did sort of a Mel Torme thing. Uh, he did Route 66. And he was in the middle of his routine one night, and he dropped his cane, blew his lines, 
and just sort of picked the show up best he could and, and moved off stage. I went down to the intermission to see if he was okay, because honestly, it, it looked like he'd suffered a, a bit of a trauma. And he was shaking. He said, well, you won't believe what happened. And he'd been on stage. He'd looked out and a figure clad in white had come out of one of the exit ways down at what would be, if you're facing the stage, the right-hand side of the house, had looked up at Shane, Shane was the performer, and had just vanished, vanished right in front of him. What nobody knew, and Shane described this guy, he said, he's short, cropped, dark hair, and he described him to me, and as he described him, I went, oh, I had had the exact same description given to me by an usher just two weeks earlier up in the projection booth in the theater. I had told no one, she had told no one, and here was Shane spinning back the exact same description. There's actually been a number of sightings in the projection room as well. We did a bunch of research at the time. One of our staff looked into were there any accidents, any fatalities. Nobody could find anything. Most of the staff who worked there, doors would slam shut. And if you know what an old theater's like, they have these big heavy metal fire doors. Those would slam shut. Posters would be scattered all over the lobby. Not a lot of noise, but figures would appear in different places. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. I hope that you've had half as much fun listening to this Halloween special as I had making it. The Hostess with a Ghostess in Chilliwack is from my book at home with history. The Grain Elevators, A Fire and a Ghost Story, is from Vancouver Exposed. Murder in James Bay is from Sensational Victoria. And the Vogue Theatre's resident ghost is thanks to my guest and former theatre manager, Bill Ullman. For more information and show notes, please go to my website, evelazarus.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it would be a huge help if you could write a review or throw out a five-star rating. <laughs>